Cohen Multimedia Studio on the grounds of Chautauqua Institution, welcome to CHQ&A, Chautauqua's flagship podcast. I'm Jordan Steves. At CHQ&A, we continue conversations that begin on stages and porches across the Chautauqua grounds. Listen on for even deeper insight into the work and thought processes of some of the celebrated individuals who passed through our gates this summer. On today's episode, Chautauqua's Director of Literary Arts, Adam Atkinson, speaks with author Victor Laval. Laval's most recent book, The Changeling, is a captivating retelling of a classic fairy tale that imaginatively explores parental obsession, spousal love, and the secrets that make strangers out of the people we love the most. Laval presented The Changeling for Chautauqua Literary and Scientific Circle on Thursday, July 12th. Laval is also the author of six previous works of fiction, three novels, two novellas, and a collection of short stories. His novels have been included in the best of year lists by the New York Times Book Review, Los Angeles Times, The Washington Post, Chicago Tribune, The Nation, and Publishers Weekly, among others. And he has been the recipient of a Guggenheim Fellowship, an American Book Award, the Shirley Jackson Award, and the Key to Southeast Queens. And now, Adam Atkinson's conversation with Victor Laval. I'm Adam Atkinson, the Director of Literary Arts here at Chautauqua Institution. I'm being joined today by this week's Chautauqua Literary and Scientific Circle author, Victor Laval, uh, The Changeling, with this week's CLSC selection. Uh, thank you for joining us, Victor. Always my pleasure. Thanks so much for uh, your wonderful presentation and for the generous Q&A that followed. Um, everyone who was there uh, experienced a real treat and... Uh, Congratulations on the reception of the book to, um, you know, critics, fans, awards bodies that celebrate horror and fantasy writing. How has your experience uh, being a writer changed since genre uh, became as instrumental as it is to your stories? Whether you're, we're talking about your practice of being a writer or uh, your relationship to your readers. Uh, well, I began as a, what would just be called a literary realist. Uh, mm -hmm. My first two books are strict literary realism about my uh, mining my own life, growing up in Queens as a black kid and mm -hmm. with uh, lots of other black Latino kids running around. And then my first novel was uh, essentially my college experience. Um, and after that, I was ready to write my next book. And the only real option I had was to write a book about a guy who goes to graduate school for writing. Uh, and I was uh, not interested in uh, repeating that pattern anymore. Right. And so I had to change things up. And that was when genre sort of came back into things because right. I was also feeling uh, pretty deeply unhappy as a writer at that point as well, mining all that real world stuff and in general only mining the worst of the real world stuff right. uh, can leave you in a pretty bad place, right? Uh, and so I found myself just kind of casting about like what's the thing what's the, what can I add to my writing life that would make me excited again and uh, the short answer was monsters <laughs> uh, but the larger answer was me realizing I needed to plug back into what made me love reading when I was young mm -hmm. and what made me love reading when I was young was horror um, in particular but genre fiction of various kinds um, and also of course literary realism is just a genre as well. Right. Uh, it's not anything but that. There's conventions to it. There's right. ways that you play into it. Uh, but it wasn't a convent. It wasn't a genre I was raised in. If I had been, if my parents were giving me, I don't know, cast off Updike or 
Cheever or something like that. Maybe <laughs> that's what I would also find joy in. Uh, but my mother was not giving me those books. <laughs> so it was about joy for you. Joy was absolutely the driving force. I mean, my feeling at the time was this isn't making me rich and it's not making me famous. It should at least make me happy, <laughs> you know. Uh, and and I found, like, as as much as it's a kind of a almost a cliche, when I chased the happiness and added in those genre elements, the other things that I hoped for, like a larger readership and maybe the chance to do make a little bit more of money and stuff like that, that came. Right. And there was a part of me that began to believe that that joy was essential to communicating something to a larger group of people. That's great. So I had said before that everyone who's there experienced a real treat, but I think they also experienced a real scare. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and so what does it mean for you to take, for, for yourself and for your readers, joy and horror and put them next to each other? You know, I have to say, like, the, one of the things that's very f interesting or fun as a person who's steeped in horror uh, and has loved it since childhood is um, it's always a, a revelation for me that the idea that being scared is not a pleasure mm. for, so, for some people, for <laughs> many people, you know, um, but uh, that for people who I think gravitate toward supernatural, horror, the weird, uh, the fantastical, um, part of the the joy is the sense of uh, sort of awe and fear being in the face of something much larger than oneself, uh, you know, that that is actually part of the pleasure um, and that it ties into something much larger as well. You know, like the one of the um, Latin, early Latin roots for the word monster is, uh, uh, can, be, uh, uh, can be translated as a message from the divine, hmm. right? And that if you think about monsters in books, in holy texts in movies they are often actually teaching their characters if it's a good one something profound about either like your family system was broken so there was enough space for something horrible to slip in or the way you were living your life was not um honest and clear and as a result you were sort of taken over by something bad uh, or just that tragedy comes to all lives. No matter how good you think your life is, you can't protect against pain and suffering. That's what monsters do uh, in stories and movies and TV. Um, and to me, that's joyous. That's a pleasure to be reminded of that stuff. But I understand also not everybody wants to be reminded of that. <laughs> you mentioned in the Q&A and just a moment ago how influential some of these books were to your childhood. Yes. Um, books of mythology, folktale. Uh, but also the work of Stephen King. For sure. Um, and later as a parent, uh, Maurice Sendak. Uh, writers whose books you said uh, work from a sort of basic fact that children have a particular understanding um, of how scary the world is. Mm -hmm. um, so though, even though you wrote The Changeling as a parent, and it's cl clearly uh, invested in the question of how it, you could even imagine parenting well in a scary world. Uh, where did some of the particular understandings that you had as a child factor into the scene work? Well, I um, I would say like, uh, so one of the things that I said yesterday that I, I, I feel like I always want to say, particularly in any where there's an audience with adults, mm -hmm. is that um, kids, there's often this, I find the strange idea that we, that an, that adults should protect kids from the facts of the world, mm. uh, right? And I'm not suggesting that you show them videos of horrific events per se, 
but that kids inherently understand the dangers of being powerless because they are powerless all the time. And that, uh, in fact, in the lives of many children, if not all children, but certainly many children, the people who love them most are sometimes the biggest dangers to them. And if, I, if that's not a formula for horror, I don't know what is, right. you know? Um, and so uh, to me, I always try to think of, like Stephen King, um, what I loved about him was that he seemed to understand and be willing to, to acknowledge to me that children were in danger. Like basically, as a kid, you were right. There are monsters. They do want to get you. And in many of the cases, and the grown-ups in no way are prepared to help you or want to help you. They're too busy. They're too lost in their own things. So if you're going to do anything, it's going to be you and your buddies gearing up to fight. That's all you have. And that can sound bleak, I think, to adults. Right. But as a kid, it felt incredibly uh, sort of uh, reassuring because I did love my friends. Uh, in fact, if I'm honest, half the time I probably loved them more than I loved my own family uh, because they didn't want to tell me when to go to bed, mm-hmm. you know, and what to eat. They were just with me. And you can't really um, understate the value of that kind of relationship. So how does that sort of thing play out, like, generationally in the book as we learn more and more about Apollo and Emma's parents and obviously Apollo's recurring dreams yeah. return right. um, at the at the moment of, of being a parent. Right. And so the it, it, it's at least suggesting that Apollo's inexperience with that vulnerability because of the person that he loved, mm-hmm. right, um, is showing up again yeah. um, as a parent. Right. Yeah. Well, I will say um, that that was definitely purposeful because uh, for me, my feeling was like uh, the only two times, at least in my life right now, the times when I've been most fearful and felt vulnerable have been when I was a child in sometimes hard situations and when our son was born, our first child was born. Right. I never felt more scared uh, Mm -hmm. than I did. And in part because in those middle years, if there, even if there are dangers in your 20s and 30s, whenever, or before I had a kid, in the end, it's it's me and my body in the world. I protect or I don't protect it. That's it. Right. But then this being comes along who is just obviously manifestly terrible at taking care of itself, right? Like, uh, I mean, babies are, human babies are so badly made uh, for living, mm-hmm. you know? And as the human being, one of the human beings who loves that, uh, like, badly designed creature suddenly that fear kicks into overdrive and so i wanted to get at that idea like being a child is when you feel incredibly vulnerable but being a new parent in particular is another time when you feel incredibly vulnerable in the world and what's worse is you're vulnerable but not for yourself you're vulnerable for something that is outside of you Hmm. and that that creates a different level of sort of anxiety. So I think before I had kids, when I would see parents who just overthink everything, who basically cover their, wrap their kid in gauze before like walking just outside to go get the mail, I would just mock them and just be like, God, just get a, get a grip and blah, blah, blah. And then once I had, uh, once our kids came, uh, our son and our daughter, I was like, oh, I'm not saying I should do that, but I know why you did it now. <laughs> right. You know? And it's just a different feeling. The landscape of the book, um, obviously New York City, is a place that where um, 
you know, various reviews called it a sort of otherworldly New York. And yet it seems like in the ways that you've been talking um, about um, your own uh, experience of the world as a child and the way it informed, like, your attraction to Stephen King, Mm -hmm. for instance. Mm -hmm. Um, How is um, New York as a simultaneously magical and scary place, you know, um, you know, a rendering that that isn't that otherworldly? And then I was also thinking about how side by side with that we have a New York where everyone on the subway helps this baby be born, mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. which is like this other kind of New York that, right. yeah, that I think a lot of New Yorkers um, would say that would resonate. Right. Uh, well, I, you know, so I, I, New York, I think, is uh, certainly not the only place like this, but yeah. is an interesting place in that it seems as though everybody thinks they know it. Right. Right. But. It's a city that, if you're open to it, will always tell you you're wrong, right? <laughs> you don't know it. Right. And, and in fact, the reason you don't know it is in part because you were here last year for a visit, but, you know, we did like a complete makeover since last year. Right. Uh, for better or worse, sometimes because something new came in, sometimes because there's nothing there, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and that all of that, though, to me, is, if you're open to it, is kind of wondrous. Um, and I wanted to get across to the reader the sense like you you think you know New York and so I'm going to take you through what New York is now meaning like just the year that the book is set you know and then like five years later it'll be like North Brother Island oh that that's like that sank into the sea it's gone <laughs> you know yeah and uh and uh, and that so so it felt like in a way a time capsule for magic New York mm. of 2017 you know wow. um and so that so that's why we go on journeys to Queens in the middle of the uh, East River and up into the Bronx and then even and parts of Manhattan and just places that I think people might even pass by and never realize like oh if I had just walked left instead of right mm-hmm. I would have found like some pretty wild stuff I would have some good stories to tell mm-hmm. um, but I'm so used to looking to going right that I never did, I never thought to do it. If you're just joining us, this is CHQ and You. I'm Adam Atkinson in conversation with Victor Laval. Victor, the theme this week is the art of play, mm-hmm. as you know. And uh, our young readers have been engaged with two books this week, uh, Snow White, a graphic novel, and A Study in Charlotte, each uh, propelling a familiar story, mm-hmm. A Study in Scarlet, the first Holmes novel, and obviously the grim fairy tale into a new context um, with new dimensions of their genre trappings unveiled. Uh, what's interesting to you about the this act of sort of retelling or reimagining or playing with fairly old stories like, uh, like you do in The Changeling or, say, uh, somewhat more contemporary in H.P. Lovecraft story, mm-hmm. uh, such as in your novella, uh, The Ballad of Black Tom? Uh, well, I think, uh, I mean, one of the things that um, depresses me or disappoints me is when uh, there's some influ- influential text of some kind, uh, and you see three, four, five, ten generations pass, and all they're doing is essentially regurgitating that text. And my feeling is always, um, why don't you just go back and read the original if all you're going to do is repeat the original, yeah. right? But I think, but of course, the point is there's something comforting in the familiarity Mm -hmm. and there's something frightening when you take a thing that is people think oh i know that thing and then you just have it flipped 
you know. Uh, but you have it flipped in a way that really like upsets people. Like I, I always love um, the old Orson Welles story about when he put on, I think it was an all-black Othello in Harlem uh, when he was a young man. And it was like incredibly controversial because they were like, no, there's only one black mm-hmm. in Othello. And his point was like, mm-hmm. like, I'm doing the exact same play. But all I'm just doing is just making the cast just look all like this. Why is that? What is that troubling in you mm-hmm. as a viewer that you can't realize I literally haven't changed the word? Because people were like, you've, you've bastardized uh, the play. You've mm-hmm. ruined Shakespeare's language. And he would say, I didn't change a word. So what is it? Like, what's happening to you? Right. You know, um, when, this, when you're hearing this and seeing it together. And so the idea of taking something old like Snow White um, or Sherlock Holmes and just tilting it enough that you say, like, it can't be like it was before if I do it like this mm-hmm. is exciting because I, I, it forces you to see what was good about the old thing, right? The stuff that lasts. And maybe also forces you to uh, forces a reader to think about the things that um, they think are essential or important, like that Sherlock Holmes needs to be a man, right? Um, and makes uh, and 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 re, uh, reminds you or teaches you, you're just wrong. That's not the part of him that makes him great, mm-hmm. right? It's that brain, and thankfully that kind of brain can show up in a young woman, right? Or, or a girl. I'm not sure how old is she in the. In the She's a in a. Uh, a high school, boarding school, high school. Okay, so yeah. in a teenage girl, she can get that brain too. Yeah, and how wondrous is that? Mm-hmm. Like that, and that, that's just uh, to me, it's electrifying mm-hmm. uh, to to see those kind of uh, experiments being done. So, what would you say were the uh, the the familiar aspects of the changeling that that you w- really felt lasted, um, or you were interesting interested in showing last in the changeling? Right. Uh, well, the big thing is so like the original changeling myths were all about, uh, they're all Scandinavian myths, uh, by and large. Yeah. Uh, and they're all about like, um, there's always, it's without fail, it's like there's a, a woman who, uh, a, a, couple, a family has a kid, has a baby, the woman is taking care of the baby, and then one day the baby is different. Mm. It starts to eat too much, or it makes, or it cries all day, or it uh, stops, to- stops making sounds altogether, uh, all this sort of stuff. And then one day while that woman... Often while the woman is like in the kitchen working, she hears like by mistake the changing start to speak in a grown troll's voice. And she realizes her baby has been switched mm-hmm. uh, for a changeling. And that's usually like the beginning of then the journey, right? And so um, like these days, uh, I think it seems pretty clear. Like these were old folk tales. These were ways for uh, people in... Scandinavia, Germany, Italy, as it spread around, to talk about things like, uh, I mean, the belief is that it's like maybe to talk about things like autism, things like that, like how a baby seems one thing one day, and then they develop in a way that, oh, it's suddenly not that baby anymore. Mm-hmm. And they didn't have a, a language to be able to say, oh, they developed into something different, or they, they have, their mind works differently. That just was beyond, I think, anyone's thinking. So instead it became, my baby got switched, mm-hmm. which is an understandable thing. I mean, we have uh, two kids... Day to day, sometimes I think a changeling has taken, has been switched for our kids. Uh, because I just am like, who is, I don't understand who my daughter is today. I don't understand who my son is today mm-hmm. uh, compared to yesterday. They were so nice yesterday, <laughs> uh, right? So, if, so, so that's like the heart of that thing. And so I wanted to use that. Mm-hmm. But, um, uh, and so I kept that in there. But the, the thing I tried to shift a little bit was that all the changeling stories always are about a mother and her baby. 
Mm-hmm. And I felt like this also reflected, obviously, uh, uh, who was doing the caretaking for children at the time when these stories are being made. But now, at least in theory, um, that you can't take that for granted. Mm-hmm. Now the father might be the primary caretaker, or at the very least might be more involved in the caretaking. Uh, and so I sort of thought like, well, what if you take essentially the mother from the old fairy tales, who's sure, but you take a father now who is maybe a little more skeptical, and you put them together in a story like this, mm-hmm. and thinking how, and feeling like that was a good way to bring something old, the traditional thing, and something new, and say, let's bash them together. So what what would you say for um, other other readers and writers and creators out there? Where does a lot of the power lie in inserting your own perspective into a legend, an age-old story, a folktale, or just canonical literature, right. like with Lovecraft or with uh, Conan Doyle? Right. Uh, well, um, I mean, going back to those fairy tales, I mean, one of the great things about those fairy tales is if you read, uh, you see like they, let's say they begin the first uh, folks who are compiling the fairy tales are these, I believe these two Italian brothers, and then the Grimm brothers sort of find what they were compiling and then just shift it to a German context and put their own name on it so everybody thinks they did it. And then on and on and on like that, but in the shifting from Italy to Germany, from Germany to Norway, from Norway to France, you see the ways that cultural perspectives change, the perspectives of what is the right way to live, what is the what is a transgression about the right way to live. It changes with the teller kind of thing do you know mm-hmm. um and so that to me is the is the actually the the only component that has to be there you know like a, you can mix and match like i to me like if it was if it was sherlock holmes is a giant roach in space could be amazing <laughs> right like who solves crimes uh in space but um if it was just I, if it was essentially just what Arthur Conan Doyle, the personalities he made, and almost the the, perspe- the, the pers- perspectives that he created, but it's just a roach in space, you kind of say, well, who cares? Right. You know? But if the writer who's doing the roach in space is coming, f- there's a reason that for them, like this, if it's not a roach, it's something like this is an animal that actually in our culture is considered like the smartest animal. Mm-hmm. And in a weird way, I'm actually t- like, talking to you I'm using Holmes and Watson to actually talk to you about um, governmental unrest in Myanmar or mm-hmm. something. That's when it gets exciting uh, because you found a way to talk to me about your thing through this um, vehicle that I have already been trained to care about, right? Like that's actually the nice, it's very Trojan horse-ish. Uh, you take a thing that people think they know and love and then you stick in something that maybe on the surface they wouldn't want to hear or talk about at all. Right. But if they're far enough into the story, they're kind of going, oh, man, you made me think about that. <laughs> what you are know? some of your favorite Trojan horses? <laughs> uh, well, to me, like, the, great, uh, the, the great Trojan horse writer is um, Angela Carter, uh, who takes all the, I mean, Bluebe- her Bluebeard is just astounding, the way that it flips the Bluebeard story for you and makes you understand what an absolute monster Bluebeard is. Mm-hmm. And that there's nothing romantic and fun about Bluebeard and about the way he's manipulating and destroying this woman mm-hmm. and the women before. Uh, like to me, she with the she has the book of stories, the Bloody Chamber, that I try to push on people all the time because she takes many of Snow White, uh, Bluebeard, 
uh, there's a werewolf story in there called uh, In the Company of Wolves. Um, and she's such a high-level writer, both line by line and her intelligence, um, that you keep thinking, oh, I know this one. And you're in it and you're in it. And then she just, you start to go, oh, I didn't want to think about this. I didn't want to, oh, oh, man, I can't ever read that the same way again. Right. Right? You know, Beauty and the Beast is, oh, oh that's a story about a kidnapping. Right. About a father who sells his daughter off. Right. Oh, jeez. That's terrible. Yeah. You know, and that, like, in the best case scenario, it's not that it ruins Beauty and the Beast for you forever, but that if you're, if it's done well, my hope is, like, you see that thing, you enjoy that thing, Emma Watson is delightful, all this kind of stuff, but there's some part of you in your head, if you had read that other one that in, that interrogates it some way, that says, like, but, you know, at a certain point, I'm going to turn to my kids and I'm going to say... You understand uh, you have the right to make your own choice about who you love, right? You don't have to love someone else to save them. They should save themselves. You save yourself. And then we get back to the movie, right? But I, but uh, loving that a thing can make you, can remind you to think about the, um, the ways everything indoctrinates you. But what is it indoctrinating you into? What's one tip? Victor, that you would give to writers and artists and creators of all kinds who are sensing that a spirit of play might not be sufficiently present in their daily practices uh, in, or in, even in their lives? Well, I mean, if, uh, man, if it's the whole life, I mean, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the first thing I, I really would say to people is if to the to the writers maybe is the only place i feel confident saying this but maybe it applies to other arts as well is if this thing isn't making you happy and you're someone who would enjoy being joyful let's say joyful not happy joyful so happy suggests like there's no nuance to it maybe right. but joy suggests and play suggests you know you get hurt when you play but then you bounce back up right. and you right um but if the thing is bringing you no joy mm-hmm. and if you don't feel yourself playing at all I would just say like, well, why do why keep doing that? Maybe that's not the story to keep working on. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, as a piece of like pure writing advice, a thing that often kickstarts joy for me again when I'm working on drafts of a story, uh, I'll say to my students uh, when I teach, um, no matter what a person is writing about, there can sometimes be a way that, let's say a char- uh, someone is writing a story about a character who fights a shark. But somehow when I read it, it reads like a person sitting at a coffee shop writing a story. And then obviously it's because they were sitting at a coffee shop writing a story and they didn't get all the sensory data mm-hmm. that they would need to convince me of that. Right. So I always tell my students, if you write about something happening, go do the thing. Just go do it. And don't fight a shark. I'm not saying that. <laughs> you know, but even like jump in a pool with a shark uh, like floaty. Right. Right. One, because you'll enjoy, like, this is so stupid, I'm having a little fun. Yeah, that sounds good. Right? But two, you will get a little sense of, like, oh, man, it's hard to breathe like this, or I'm tired so fast. And those will be details that will show up in the work that will make me believe the thing you're writing as well. Mm -hmm. And so, like, going out and doing things is, uh, like, in a weird way, I treat the writing sometimes now, like, I write about things I hope to go do, because I know me, I'll only do them if I need it for the story or the book. Or I'll most likely do them for that reason. So, you know, 
and write stories about going to Alaska because about something in Alaska because I would love to visit Alaska, you know, <laughs> and uh, and I can't publish a thing until I've done the thing. So mm-hmm. there we go. Well, how are you playing next or Trojan horsing next or what? What are some of the things that you're that you're thinking about? Uh, well, the next thing I um, I'm working on a, n- another novella, um, and it's a it's a western. Uh, in theory, it takes place in Montana during the homesteading period, uh, in the early like 1900s, uh, early-ish 1900s, uh, and it's in particular it's focused on um, uh, what they used to call lone women, uh, because the Homesteading Act. One of the things that was actually amazing about it was, it was one of the few th- government programs where you did not have to, you did not need a man's approval mm-hmm. to get the land. A single woman who, as long as she was not uh, um, married somewhere else you know if she is if she was single or widowed she could apply for her 160 acres or whatever it was in montana and then she would go to the land and if she lived on that land for five years uh for a certain number of months over five years uh the land became hers and so there's uh i've been reading these histories about there's a lot of women who for one reason or another did not fit in with general society right uh but they said maybe i'll go here and just be alone. But then when they got there, they discovered, oh, this woman also came. And this woman also came. And I wanted to write this. And so I'm working. It's like a a story basically about these women who realize, oh, we could essentially make a country within the country that is just ours. Uh, and then, of course, in my experience, at least, whenever something like that happens, whenever there's a, a, a group without power who starts to amass a little power, Mm-hmm. The larger group comes and says, "Hey, what are you doing over here? We want it." Right, right. And so uh, a lot of uh, the men nearby begin to hear about them and what they're doing. And first, they start nicely, like, "Wouldn't you love a husband? Don't you need a man around?" Mm-hmm. And then when that's rebuffed, they start to say, "You need us." And that sounds a little scary. Yes, yes. Yeah. And uh, but the women are tough. I will say, like, it's not a. At least at this point, it's not a tragedy. The <laughs> yeah. the women are tough. Uh, they're homesteading this land on their own, so they're they're in no way uh, uh, easily uh, overtaken. Right. And uh, but they will have to fight. Victor, thank you so much. Oh, this is my pleasure. Really, thank you. Special thanks to Victor Laval for joining us on CHQ&A today and to guest interviewer Adam Atkinson. Our producer for this episode was Vincent Nelson. A version of this program may also air as Chautauqua Chronicles on WRFA 107.9 FM listener-supported radio in Jamestown, New York. CHQ&A is a production of Chautauqua Institution, recorded in the Cohen Multimedia Studio. I'm Jordan Steves. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back shortly with another episode of CHQ&A.